According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 12. This uh, episode, event 13 in the Galilean ministry, is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Although we are using Matthew 12 as the primary text, we will refer to Mark at one point coming up here as he does include a detail that uh, is not recorded in Matthew or Luke, and I want to make sure we don't neglect that in the process of using Matthew as our primary text. We're in the midst of three Sabbath controversies, the Pool of Bethesda, the Plucked Grain, and then coming up, the Withered Hand. And uh, all three of them coming back to back, but all three of them showing a progression of the hostility. And so we'll make note of that when we get to the Withered Hand, controversy under episode 14 we've already observed it in uh, just comparing this one with the previous one that uh, the pharisees aren't waiting until after the fact to criticize the lord they're actually jumping on him almost immediately as soon as the uh, disciples have the grain in their mouth as it were they just barely begin to pluck the heads and, and start to eat and as soon as that process begins the pharisees are uh, jumping all over jesus saying why are you letting them do this so we will uh, make note of that. It gets even more intense with the next episode with the withered hand, and that, that we'll see uh, here shortly. It's also here in Matthew chapter 12. Before we begin any of this, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing the grace that allows us to be here this morning, and we thank you for working in the hearts of believers, producing the uh, the motivation, the motivation to assemble together and to receive instruction. We ask, Father, that you would reward that volition. We ask that you would bless our time together and let the Word of God go forth effectively and powerfully. We thank you that it is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that it would pierce as deep as it needs to, even uh, even to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The Father, uh, we claim the promise it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you said it. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode 13, the Plucked Grain Sabbath Controversy. We don't know the specific location, but we do know he is en route back to Galilee. The subsequent events take place in Galilee, and so it's natural to assume that it follows the controversy there in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. The Pharisees are jumping immediately on the Lord and calling them the food monitors, as that's what they seem to have uh, placed themselves into that position, observing the disciples' grain consumption, and they file an indictment. We notice that they jump on them as soon as they began to pick and eat. Just the moment the activity started, there they were. In, with the Pool of Bethesda, though, they didn't know about it at the time. They only found out about it after the fact. And so they, uh, they weren't on hand to condemn the Lord as quickly as they were here in this incident. Interestingly enough, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. Now, you might have been told at some point that it's not right to do that. Uh, you might have had teachers or so forth that said you cannot answer a question with a question. Well... In, in those settings, I suppose it is inappropriate to do that because it's a bit defiant, isn't it? If you're, going to, if you're being asked a question and you turn the tables and you throw a question back the other direction, I suppose in a school setting where you're under the authority of a teacher and, and the teacher is using the questions to gauge your level of understanding and your progress in your studies and so forth, then turning the tables and throwing a question back is, is not appropriate because that puts the shoe on the other foot, and that puts you in the role of teacher and puts them on the defensive, so to speak. So in a classroom setting, I suppose that is an inappropriate method of debate or inappropriate method of, of logical uh, dialogue. With Christ and the, and the Pharisees, though, he immediately, by not only turning the tables, uh, truly does reverse the position between the teacher and the learner, the authority and the, the one learning, because ultimately he is the authority when it comes right down to it. In the next event, we're going to see there's a circumstance in which he not only turns the tables, but to where he launches into a question of his own as a direct challenge. And we'll, we'll spot that as well, because it's almost like 
with a withered hand, he's ready to, to double dog dare them, you know, as it were, saying, here we are, it, we're in the synagogue, here, it's the Sabbath, here's the man with the withered hand, now. And he just turns it and puts it right to him. He said, is it unlawful to do an act of divine power, to do something that's good according to God's definition of goodness now? And uh, he leaves them rather speechless because they can't answer that. See? All right. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got to wrap up Pluck Graham before we can get to Withered Hand. Uh, he answers with a question of his own. And it's, it's an interesting question, or really a series of questions. Uh, and we have to combine a little bit. We have to combine the Matthew record here uh, because the, the line of argument is, is quite interesting. He says, first of all, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Uh, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests of the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? So he places two conditions there for them. All right. Two conditions there for them, both of which come from the biblical record. So both of which can serve as a as an impartial arbitrator, as an as a an unimpeachable witness, because if they have a complaint or a problem, then they have to take it up with the scriptures. They can't just necessarily debate him on the on the issue. And that's really what sets Jesus apart from any other uh, rabbi of his day. They call him rabbi as if he's part of a club. Uh, but in reality, uh, their system that they set up in their day was just that. It was a, a mutual admiration society where they could laud one another's achievements and and uphold one another's positions or even argue one another's positions and you have the two dominant ones of Hillel and Shammai but there were others beyond them and the the amazing thing was was that even when they could criticize one another right I mean Hillel would would criticize Shammai left and right for his liberal positions for example or vice versa I guess no, Hillel was the more liberal of the two. But, you know, they could, they could do that. They could criticize one another. But at the end of the day, they still um, admitted to the other's legitimacy. You know, in other words, you had the right to your view because you were an honored teacher and you were an honored rabbi. And, and we, we disagree, but we still hold you up kind of thing. And as the, the mutual admiration society goes, you know, even when they disagree, they at least agree that they're part of this club. All right, when it comes right down to it. Now, here's Jesus, and he's not going to approach it and say, well, I'm now a rabbi in my own right. My followers are going to become followers of my school, and we're going to, we're going to conflict with Shimei and Halal and all these other ones, and we're going to form another sect of rabbinic Judaism. He doesn't do any of that. And so he's not added to the Mishnah, as it were, where you have a, a proposition and then Rabbi Hillel says this and Rabbi Shemini says that and Rabbi Jesus says this and followers can then pick and choose who, which school they're going to follow. Jesus doesn't play that game, doesn't even enter into that realm. He takes it back to the scriptures and says, well, David did this and it's recorded in the scriptures. Now what are you going to do about it? Right? Just leaves it with the word of God and it is a, it is a powerful method. Now... The example of David was undeniable. Let's go back and look at 1 Samuel 21, and we'll spend some time. I said last week we would do this, 1 Samuel 21, because it's undeniable, and to the Pharisees it's inexplicable. Absolutely inexplicable. One of the, it, it forms an interesting tactic or methodology in the realm of apologetics if you are indeed contending earnestly for the faith and if you can find a uh, a subject or a realm or something where the person on the other side where they just don't have an answer see the pharisees have no answer to this because in their realm in their world of, of hyper legalism um, david needs to be put to death because david violated the law all right. David needs to be put to death. And it's, it's, they can't explain why he's not. Okay? And this isn't the only place where David should be put to death. David committed adultery. Adulterers under the law should be put to death. David committed murder. Murderers under the law should be put to death. There's any number of reasons why David should be judicially executed by any fair standard of a hyperlegalist. He's, he's, he needs to be put to death. But he's not. See? 
That thing's making more noise than usual, isn't it? Huh. Oh, well. Um, we do have concerns about it, but that's all right. No, it's the, it's the projector there that's whining. Now, if it's a child that's whining, I tell them, quit whining. But a machine, you just deal with it, I guess. I don't know. You can't hear it? Okay, well, I'll quit letting it bug me then. Let's look at David. Um, because it's, it's inexplicable on the part of the Pharisees. And that actually can, can be uh, a tactic, for example. Um, when I deal, a lot of times I deal with these um, uh, Answers in Genesis people or these uh, Young Earth people and so forth. And they, they, they're, they're, they're uh, ferocious Almost like attack dogs in, in a lot of ways. And I like what they do when they demonstrate the uh, historical validity of Genesis, when they defend the scriptures. Those, that's, they need to do that. That's great. But one glaring weakness they have is they don't delve into angelic matters whatsoever. They totally ignore angelic matters. And they get very ugly with respect to uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 and gap theory and so forth, and they really get absolutely ugly with respect to anybody like Larkin or myself or anyone else that holds to the gap theory of Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2, and the angelic earth in between. They get, they get ugly, and they flat out say, well, you're just trying to compromise with the evolutionists. You're trying to find billions and billions of years. That's why you support gap theory. And they say, well, no, wait a minute. I'm not doing that. I'm not compromising with evolutionists. I'm not trying to find billions and billions of years. I'm not trying to, to make scientists happy. I'm just trying to reconcile the scriptures. I'm trying to reconcile Job 38, Isaiah 45, and all these, uh, Ezekiel 28, all these other places where there's demonstrable angelic stewardship on the earth. And I just want to make it fit somewhere, all right, and keep make the scripture uh, consistent with other scripture and so forth and, and present a comprehensive systematic theology as far as Genesis to Revelation, Alpha to Omega. See, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. Okay? And then putting it back on them, saying, okay, well then, in your universe, as you understand Genesis, and they are the experts in Genesis after all, what, where do you put the fall of Satan, the, the angelic rebellion, and their judgment, and their destruction, and all that? Where do you put that? And they go, oh, well, um, we don't know. Because in their mindset, it's inexplicable. Okay, They are left with an inexplicable conundrum because they have so defined their position in such rigid ways that they have no place to put that and they can't put it anywhere. And they're terrified to try to put it in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 because in their mind, then that's a compromise with evolutionists. And they've spent too much, they have too much invested in attacking the gap people as being, as being wrong that they can't reevaluate it themselves and ponder, well, maybe there's a place for this here. Okay? And so it's the Lord's methodology of leaving them with an inexplicable biblical matter, and, uh, and it can be quite productive. Now, David came to Nob, and what happens here is that Saul is the king, and Saul wants David dead. And so David is escaping. And Jonathan helps him in the previous chapter to, uh, to uh, make it clear that this is Saul's intent. So David comes to Nob to Abimelech the, pre- Abimelech the priest. Abimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? He's here under unusual circumstances. He's, uh, he's not here. In fact, we read a little bit of this last week, I remember now. And uh, David gives him this song and dance about being on the secret mission. You know, uh, I'm on a secret mission and I can't tell you, but I need food. And um, the priest says, you know what, I don't have any. The only bread that's here is the bread that's the consecrated bread. And according to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, that's the text we didn't get to last week. According to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, that bread is set apart and only, only the priests can partake of it. The priests and the Levites can partake of it. So hold your finger there. Let's take a look at Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. There's a lot of other things here in terms of the oil that they bring to light the, uh, the lamp. The lamp can't go out. They ha- it has to be burning continuously. 
Um, Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order uh, on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You should put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the uh, for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Verse eight. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him. Uh, from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Now, ultimately, these are set out there as a display, as a memorial, as a testimony to the Lord. But then as it gets replaced, then Aaron and his sons partake of it. And it's, you know, the Lord's sharing, as it were, with Aaron and his sons in a holy place. It becomes an opportunity for them to partake in in a, in a activity here of intimacy and so forth. And God doesn't need to eat it. Right? God doesn't have to physically consume the loaves. He doesn't eat. Alright? So, anyway, these, these are the loaves. And they are for Aaron and the sons. They're not for, they're not supposed to be for anyone else. Alright? And just as God is willing to share, now here in this chapter, Abimelech says, you know what? Or Ahimelech, sorry. Abimelech somebody else. Ahimelech, in 1 Samuel 21... He's now willing to share. And he's willing to give up these loaves to David and to his men. And um, it's interesting. It's not, it's not um, um, back to 1 Samuel 21 here. David asked, whatever, uh, now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread. Now he's willing to share it, even though David's not a priest. David's not authorized. Uh, and notice he's not bringing David into the sanctuary, but he's bringing the bread out in any event. And he comes up with a stipulation in verse 4. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. Now, that didn't come out of Leviticus anywhere. Did you see anything like that when you were reading Leviticus just a moment ago? No, it's not in there anywhere. Okay? And what we have here is a very interesting application where Ahimelech has some discretion. He has some maturity. He has some wisdom. And he says, you know what? Um, this is a real interesting and unusual circumstance, isn't it? <laughs> David's running for his life. The king wants him dead. And if he doesn't get bread somehow, you know, he's going to starve to death or what have you. He needs to be supplied. He needs to be provisioned. Ahimelech says, all right, this is not normal. This is not what we would typically do. But given the fact that this is what it is, let's, uh, let's get David and his men some bread. All right? But let's make sure that they're not totally profaning the whole process here and then and and that if they uh if they're consecrated if they're holy if they're ceremonially clean then hey here's some bread okay there's a lot of different ways you can teach this chapter you can uh, approach it in the aspect of ahimelech is wrong for what he's doing or he's right for what he's doing david's wrong for what he's doing or he's right for what he's doing okay or you know, the letter of the law says this, but in the spirit of the law, they're, they're, not willfully, um, they're not willfully defying God's purpose. They're not intentionally altering the, uh, the, the ritual. Okay? Now, whichever way us puny, finite, ridiculous uh, Bible teachers try to interpret this text, okay? In spite of whatever, I mean, you, you can get a, a hundred different interpretations here of 1 Samuel 21. What did Jesus do with it? He used it as an example to loosen up with these Pharisees. In other words, here they are just as hyper-restrictive as possible with respect to the letter of the law. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what did David do? If you guys were in charge, you'd have struck David down dead. Right? 
And so he's using that as the example. That's his take on the text, as it were. That's his treatment of the First Samuel 21 passage. See, so uh, I think when it comes down to um, when it comes down to the flexibility that's expected, we have to stop and realize: wait a minute, we're obeying God's commands. But we're not going to be so slavishly obeying God's commands to the nth degree, even if, in defiance of all common sense, we're going to die because of that. Right? And he comes right back to it, and he puts it back in terms of the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He puts the perspective back in its right orientation, and he says, we've got to deal with this on a reasonable, rational basis. Now, back to... Matthew 12. And does that mean uh, we ignore God's commands all the time and just do what we want all day, every day? No. Absolutely not. Under normal circumstances. Under normal circumstances. Yet with recognizing that unique conditions may leave room for, uh, for such opportunities. That's the first line of thought. Okay? The first line of thought is that, wait a minute, first of all, stop and examine, are you being hyper-legalistic with this, or is there, is there a way in which an exception can occur in a sanctified manner? Okay? And the Lord didn't just leave it at that, because to leave it at that would mean that the Lord was saying, okay, we know what's wrong, but we can always make an exception. Okay? He didn't leave it at that. He goes on and gives other examples. And immediately he goes on here to the, to the priesthood example of the priests in the temple, how they break the Sabbath every Sabbath. Okay? So he didn't just leave it with the David illustration. Had he left it with the David illustration by itself, then that might have been rather weak. But he gives a number of illustrations here. The David illustration was simply one. Okay? And remarkably enough, the David illustration is more appropriate than they want to admit. Because for them to admit how appropriate the David illustration was, they have to admit that they want to kill Jesus. Right? Because remember, David was on the run from King Saul. King Saul wanted him dead. The only reason David was, was eating that bread was because he was fleeing for his life. Now the Lord can make a claim saying, well, you know, we would have bought provisions on the way to back to Galilee, except for the fact that you murdering Pharisees were trying to kill me. So we fled, and we're getting out of Dodge, so to speak. We're getting back to Galilee, and by virtue of the fact that you want us dead, we were picking the heads of grain as we were passing through this field. <laughs> All right, and... What, what Pharisee is going to say, oh, you're right, okay. <laughs> we did want you dead. So, you know, it's kind of hard to stone them for breaking the Sabbath for, uh, you know, for that when they themselves are attempting murder for which they, should, they themselves should be stoned, right? Let's take the log out of your own eye before you're trying to get the speck out of the other person's eye. And uh, here they are with murderous intent and uh, they're trying to uh, to bring this accusation against the Lord. All right, so there's the uh, thing with David. All right, and I think uh, when you look at breaking the law, for example, Nadab and Abihu, they brought strange fire in before the Lord, and the Lord struck them dead. Okay, because they were intentionally, willfully, defiantly telling God, I don't care about your law. This is what I'm going to do. And they went in and did it. They brought the strange fire in and God zapped him dead. Now, with David, David wasn't going in before the Lord and saying, I don't care about your silly rules with this bread. I don't care that it's supposed to be for the priest alone. From now on, I'm going to eat what I want to eat. The priest can go take a hike. Uh, and David wasn't attempting to live in defiance of the law. He wasn't intending to totally toss out the law from this point forward. It was just on this occasion, he needed it. On this occasion, it was time for an exception. All right? And uh, that's a considerable difference there. The law itself even makes exceptions in certain cases where if you're too far away to make that 
pilgrimage on Passover, well, then you can convert it to a cash equivalency and have that sent. And anyway, there's there's other ways. The law is actually much more gracious than uh, I think people give it credit for. All right, now the second illustration. He says here... Um, He says here, or, verse 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests of the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? I mean, they break the Sabbath every day, every Sabbath, because they're working. (laughs) Right? The Sabbath says, thou shalt not work. Well, who's working on the Sabbath? The the priests are. The Levites are. Aren't they breaking the Sabbath? Because that's their working. That's their job, right? You know, it's, you know... Almost everybody in the church has Sunday off because they're not working. They have the day off and they get to go to church. Well, who's working on Sunday? The pastor's working on Sunday, right? Well, it's, it's interesting here. Not only do they have their general duties to perform, they've got their morning and evening offerings to to offer they've got the animals to slaughter they've got a lot of duties they have to take part in. Uh, one of the things they have to do is circumcise. And that's often a lot of the commentators bring that up is that, uh, you know, that every male child that's born has to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. Right. And so, well, guess what that means? That means that every boy that's ever born on a Friday. Eight days later, automatically, that's going to hit on the Sabbath. You can't help it. Every Friday birth of a male, that eighth day where they have to be circumcised is going to fall on the Sabbath. So that led to a question. They're like, well, wait a minute. The law says circumcise on the eighth day. The law also says don't do any work on the Sabbath. And so they looked at those two and they said, what do we do with this? And they came to the conclusion, I believe rationally so, rightly so, that you know what? That's okay. You're not breaking the Sabbath when you're doing what God tells you to do. Circumcising a baby is not violating the Sabbath anyway because it's not labor. It's not work. It's not you're not bringing in income. You're not pursuing your commerce just circumcising a baby all right so it's not violating work they came to the logical rational conclusion that obeying god it doesn't break the sabbath and when you admit that then they can't accuse jesus of anything because as the lord of the sabbath if he tells his disciples uh pick some grain and eat well then they're they're under orders they have permission that's no different than the Priests saying, okay, let's go ahead and do circumcisions on Saturday. Well, they've got permission. So, uh, this is point five, by the way. The example of the temple priest is likewise definitive. The example of the temple priests is likewise definitive. They are working, but they're not Sabbath breakers. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests of the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? They're not Sabbath breakers, even though they're working. That is their career. That is their livelihood. That is their manner of living. See, they're not breaking the Sabbath. Any spiritual ministry should be done on the Sabbath. There's no better day to do it. And we'll have that as a concept as well with respect to all these miracles. And Jesus says, you know, is it lawful to do a miracle? You're serving God. You're doing a work of divine power. What better day than the Sabbath to do that? A day that's supposed to highlight his glory. That's the most appropriate day of the week for a miracle. Far better than Sunday through Friday. The Sabbath, what a great day. The day that's supposed to be set aside to honor God and his gracious work. And what better day to do a miracle than the Sabbath? So, of course, it's appropriate for the priest to serve. That's what they do. They're serving God on the day of God's service. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And this something greater principle is so important. Something greater than the temple is here. That's why I and other dispensational scholars will separate out the age of the incarnation as a unique age within the overall dispensation of Israel. Somebody asked me about that last Sunday when we were charting out the dispensations. You have the dispensation of Israel. And a lot of scholars will separate out promise from law because until Moses there was no law. So with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the descendants down to Moses, they, they, they couldn't have been under the law. 
So we call that the age of promise. They were under the Abrahamic covenant promises. But once the law was given, now we have a separate set of circumstances where the stewardship is still Israel's, but the conditions of that stewardship are under the, the aspects of the law. And so we have that as an age. We have the age of promise, the age of law. There's a coming age of tribulation, for example, which has a unique set of circumstances that doesn't change the stewardship. Stewardship is still Israel, but the conditions of that stewardship are such that we call that the age of tribulation. Also doesn't change the fact that they're under law, but they're under law with the uh, additional elements of tribulation there when God deals with them fiercely. Okay? And, and same too in terms of the millennium. It's Israel's stewardship. It has unique conditions because the son of David, the God-man, is seated on the throne, but it's still Israel's stewardship. Their prophets are expected to minister to the Gentiles during that whole millennial age. It's Israel's stewardship. Millennium is Israel's stewardship. Now, this unique period of time when people weren't looking back or weren't looking forward, they were looking right at Jesus the Christ, that was a unique circumstance. It didn't change the stewardship. Israel is still God's steward on earth. But there are these unique circumstances of having the Christ in their midst. The kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. Something greater than the temple is here. And that verse says, you know what? This is a unique age. And that's why I I call this the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. Something greater than the temple is here. If you glance on down, the same chapter has a couple of other passages. Um, I can find them quickly enough. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Stop to consider what testimony is going to be offered at the great white throne. The the Ninevites are going to have, and believing Gentiles, believing Gentiles, they're not standing at the great white throne for their own judgment. They're They're already resurrected and glorified. Believing Gentiles. But they will have testimony to offer at the great white throne when these unbelieving Jews from Jesus' day when these first century unbelieving Jews are going to be condemned and thrown into the lake of fire, some of the testimony against them is going to be produced by resurrected and glorified saints, in this case, Gentile saints. And uh, that's beyond what I want to teach this morning, but the uh, something greater than, the, than Jonah is here. Verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So they have this opportunity. Was there a prophet in their midst? Yes. The greatest prophet in the history of the, of the universe because it's God the Son in the flesh. And the greatest Bible teacher, wiser than Solomon, it's God the Son in the flesh. And here they are all wrapped up about the temple. What was the temple? The temple was a place where one person once a year could approach God's holiness. What was Jesus Christ? God's holiness in the flesh. And everybody could come to him and receive teaching and get saved and all these things. Something greater than the temple was here. And here are these Pharisees that uh, are in total rejection of the Christ. So, under point six, let's look at this uh, Hosea quotation. The principle of grace is a defense against condemnation legalism. The principle of grace is a defense against condemnation legalism. Not just, in a, not just a defense that you and I might make use of out, of out of hand, but it actually is a defense that Jesus Christ employed as the third response to their accusations. The first response was David. second response was the temple priest. The third response now in his, in his logical argument, he says, if you would have known, reading from verse 7, if you had known, it's a second class condition. It is not true. You don't know this. You should. I told you two, three chapters ago, but you still haven't done your homework. The principle of grace is a defense against condemnation legalism. 
I find that folks that come out of Baptist legalism or Catholic legalism or any other kind of legalism that's out there, Jewish legalism or what have you, the thing that impacts them more than anything else is grace. Because they've never seen it before. They have no idea. They got saved. They're like Galatians. They got saved by grace, but they've been living by law ever since. And then all of a sudden, someone deals with them with grace. And they're stunned, overwhelmed. See, they had no idea. They come into the church and they got this chip on their shoulder and they think the first thing that's going to happen is everyone's going to disapprove of them. They're going to look down their nose, they're going to disapprove, and they're going to be uncomfortable and fine. Then they can walk out all mad and say, see, I told you so, I knew that was going to be it. I knew those Christians were going to look down at me. But what happens is, is they walk into a place that has grace and all of a sudden they're not condemned. They're not jumped on. They're welcomed. They're accepted. They feel like they can actually be themselves and who they are and they feel like, you know, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And the grace just overwhelms them. It's, it's a powerful thing. And he says, if you had known what this means, I dare desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. It's always remarkable how legalism condemns. <laughs> legalism condemns. It's always, you don't measure up, you don't measure up, you don't measure up. And even if you do measure up once, right, does anybody say anything about it or is it just kind of a, oh, all right, you made it this time, do it again. I worked with a man that he and his brother hated church, absolutely hated it. Because every time, he, he felt, every time his parents were dragging him, making him sit there, making him sit still, and that he was on display. And that he had to be dressed right. He had to have, be, have his face clean, his teeth brushed, his hair straight and everything. And if anything was out of place, in other words, if he was a disappointment to his mom or his dad or if anything, then they, they caught grief for it. See, because they were there for appearances. They were there to show how good Christian people they were and what a nice Christian family they were and, and, and to put on the appearances and to be to have the approval of their fellow churchgoers there and then go home, see. And if the kid wiggled or something, you know, coughed or made a noise or whatever, then it's the end of the world. And how dare you embarrass me in front of the pastor? How dare you? You know, and all these other things. And so, guess what? You think he went to church again after he left home? I haven't seen him now for a number of years, but at the point when uh, when I did know him, when we had these conversations, he had yet to return to darken the doors of any church. See, well, that's what legalism does. It condemns. But accurate Bible teaching is a safeguard against that. If you had known, notice the knowledge, the gnosis, the, the apprehension of God's word, in this case, Hosea 6.6, 6, the apprehension of God's word is a is equipment to believers that prevents them from falling into this condemnation trap. In other words, grace teaching produces grace thinking. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Now that's a powerful statement. Because, again, you have to hold the two, just like we talked about with circumcised on the eighth day, don't break the Sabbath, Okay. You have to stop and say, wait a minute, both of these passages come together. Both of these passages, they don't contradict, they have to complement. What does this mean? Okay. Now, you look at this passage, it says, I don't want a sacrifice. Ignore that, I desire compassion for the moment. Just not a sacrifice. You've got a Bible verse that says, don't, don't offer sacrifices. Okay. Let's go to Hosea 6. It's right after Daniel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Okay. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Don't know why. He's got 14 chapters. You'd think he'd be long enough. But he's lumped in with the other 11 to be called the 12. Okay. Hosea 6.6. 6. It's a wonderful uh, testimony to grace and forgiveness and cleansing. Come, let us return to the Lord, it says in Hosea 6.1. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. You know, anytime God administers divine discipline, he's not doing it because he hates you, and he's not doing it because he wants to see you crushed and destroyed. He's doing it because you need a change of thinking. And when you have the change of thinking, you can always return to him and be forgiven. 
He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. How wonderfully prophetic is that? They don't even know what they're doing. That's looking ahead to the resurrection of Christ, and yet they're speaking in terms of their national forgiveness and their, their promise of restoration and so forth. That we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know Yahweh, to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. And we don't know when, but we know it's certain. It's just as certain as the fact the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Jesus Christ is coming. Verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? (laughs) Is everybody in this room a parent? Pretty close. All right. Um, You know, what am I going to do with you? Those are classic, classic words. I think every parent since Adam and Eve have said those words. What am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with you? Ephraim, representative of the northern kingdom. Judah, representative of the southern kingdom. The two kingdoms together being identified here. Your loyalty is like a morning cloud. Talk about fair weather. You're gone. As soon as the sun heats up, there goes the dew. Like the dew which goes away early. That's how loyal they were. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. The prophets weren't just Bible teachers. They didn't just show up and teach a Bible class. Some of them were pretty violent. They were commanded to be violent. Look at what Samuel did. Uh, When Saul spared King Agag, Samuel showed up and said, wrong answer. Agag's supposed to be dead. He hacked him up into tiny little pieces. And he sent those pieces in different parts and said, here, put these pieces of Agag on display and send them to different places. And we'll let all Israel know that God's serious. When he says, Agag has to die, Agag has to die. Samuel was, was... Pretty ferocious, okay? That's why when he shows up in Bethlehem, uh, the elders of Bethlehem will start trembling and saying, uh, why, why are you here? <laughs> right? Wondering who's going to get chopped up next. And Samuel says, hey, where's Jesse? He's got a son I want to talk to. Okay? You can imagine how frightening this is. Well, here's the divine discipline. I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. Look what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal. All right? And... Uh, It's interesting when God uses his tools for divine discipline. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgment on you. Judgments on you are like the light that goes further and and then goes forth in verse six. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant there. They have dealt treacherously against me. See this, the context of this and this principle, God loves grace. Okay. In the Hebrew, it's the chesed, it's the loving kindness and grace principle. It's rendered loyalty in verse 4 and in verse 6. But it's the chesed, it's the blessed loving kindness. It's the concept that gets fully developed in the New Testament is the development of grace. Now, rather than sacrifice, there's a contrast here. If you have grace on the one hand and sacrifice on the other, the contrast between them is such that this is what God loves and this is what God hates. If you have to contrast them, it's like, unless you hate your father and mother, you don't love me. Remember that passage? That's a tough passage, and people get confused on it, and they get all mad. But what it is, it's, it's the rhetorical, it's, it's actually, it's, a, it's an element of, of rhetoric. It's a device by which you can show the contrast and show the primacy that this one has. And it, it doesn't really admit the legitimacy of the other. The other is just thrown to quite an extreme to demonstrate where the priority lies. Okay? You don't actually hate your parents. Come on. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. You love your parents. That's fine. We don't literally hate your parents. But that, 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 that device that the Lord uses communicates that compared to, compared to the love you should have for God, you should hate your parents. Am I making sense here? Now, compared to the high value that God holds chesed, that God holds grace, the sacrifices, on the other hand, he hates them. He doesn't even want them. Butchering the goat is not the point. Because just like Ephraim and just like Judah, what you can do is you can hold to a form of godliness while denying its power. You can continue on with a religious show and offer sacrifices which they were doing. But they weren't living the the life. They weren't loving God. They weren't serving God. They didn't have any reality behind the ritual. All it was was just 
butchering goats and sheep and bulls and following the calendar and observing the sacrifices. And if we do that, then we make God happy and we can do whatever we want over here. Wrong. You've got to have the grace, the chesed perspective. And so the principle of grace is, uh, is what underlies there. And so not only do we have the Hosea 6.6, 6, but we have the Isaiah 1 passage where God says, quit it already. I'm sick of your, of your sacrifices. They stink. You familiar with Isaiah 1? Isaiah 1, join me there. I love the examples that are easy to find. Isaiah is a huge, massive 66-chapter book. In fact, after Psalms, there's no lar- larger uh, book in the Bible and easier one to find. 66 chapters. Chapter 1. You know what it says? He says, I hate your sacrifices. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah were long dead thousand years prior to this. He's talking to his own children, but he's calling them names and that gets their attention. Because, I mean, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? We know what happened to them. And if God starts calling you Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think is going to happen to you? What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Well, what's wrong with that? Aren't they supposed to give sacrifices? Aren't they obeying Leviticus? Yeah, they're obeying Leviticus externally, outwardly. But God says, you know what? I'm sick of this. I've had enough. I've had it up to here. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? See, what you're doing, because you're here with the wrong attitude, you're dragging mud all over the place. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. See, it's not a sweet-smelling savor. It stinks. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. The mental attitude is wrong. And so your sacrifice is worthless. It's like showing up to Bible class in carnality. Are you going to get any credit in the judgment seat of Christ for being in attendance in a Bible class when you sat there mad the whole time? No. No credit for that. Why? Because you, you planted your rump in a chair for an hour? What's that? When your heart is a carnal and your mind doesn't want to be there and, and uh, the motivation's all wrong? You're trampling the courts, according to verse 12. I cannot endure iniquity of the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. That's the language of hatred. Your appointed feasts, they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. I'm just tired of it. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. It doesn't say he cannot listen. It says he will not listen. When you're carnal, you can't pray. Because he will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So what's the answer? Confess. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, and goes on. We always have the confession process, and that's what we have in Hosea. You know what? You can confess. You can turn back. He will accept you. But as long as you continue in this phony approach, where you have uh, these worthless abomination sacrifices, when you think that uh, you think that sacrifice is going to do you any good, he says, "I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice." Learn about grace. Learn what grace is all about. Now, here in Matthew 12, he tells them that they don't know. It's a second class condition. If you had known, right? And the understanding in a second class condition is that it is a statement, it is a condition contrary to fact. They do not know. This logic assumes that they do not know, but they could have known, they should have known. He told them to know. But they didn't do their homework. If you had known, then you would not have. See? But because you didn't know, you have. Because you didn't know the meaning of Hosea 6.6. Because you didn't know Hosea 6.6, you condemned the innocent. You came down on the disciples like a ton of bricks. And they're innocent. They're not Sabbath breakers. Just three chapters prior, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, the, uh, we were here not that long ago. Matthew gets saved. Matthew gets called to uh, disciple service. 
says, follow me, he followed him, started hosting uh, dinner receptions, a series of them over several nights. And the Pharisees are all condemning. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Remember this episode? It wasn't that long ago. And he told them, he gave them an answer in verse 12. It's not to those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Not only did he answer their question, but he gave them homework to do. He told them in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. He says, go do a Bible study in Hosea 6, 6. And come to a doctrinal understanding of that grace teaching. Remember, grace teaching leads to grace thinking. He said he gives them homework here. But see, they don't do it. So now three chapters later in, in Matthew chapter 12, he's, he, he nails them. He's just like a teacher saying, you know what? You didn't do your homework, did you? I told you three chapters ago to do a Bible study on Hosea 6, 6, and you didn't do it. Because if you would have known what this means, you would not have condemned the innocent. Grace teaching produces grace thinking. All right, now we can wrap this up over at Mark 2 and bring in an element that uh, isn't in the Matthew 12 record. <laughs> Mark is after Matthew. I don't know why I was flipping the other way for some reason. Ended up in Malachi. Surprise, surprise. Mark chapter 2 in verse 27. In Mark's record, he uh, again uses the David illustration. He does not talk about the uh, the uh, temple illustration. He also does not bring in the Hosea 6, 6 quotation. But he does give us some details here that are unique to Mark in verse 27 and 28. And this then becomes the fourth logical uh, argument. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Notice. I think the problem is people jump to verse 28 right away and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is basically just saying, well, I said so, so there. Right? <laughs> I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and I said so, so they can eat whatever they want to eat. So there. Okay? No, that's not what verse 28 is saying. And verse 28 is the, is the extension of verse 27. The point that's being made is being made in verse 27. Not just a, I told you so. But the point that's being made is the priority in verse 27. The priority of man over the Sabbath establishes that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right? It's not just the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, because he is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Okay? That might have to sink in for a minute. Let's look at verse 27. The priority of man over the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Get the order right. You have to ask, which direction is it? There's two different directions in view in terms of a priority structure. Which one is it? Okay. And you're going to do this exercise not only for Sabbath issues, but how about also for marital issues? Was Adam made for Eve or was Eve made for Adam? Okay. Now, there's a whole crowd of folks out there that don't like this priority message, but it's the biblical message. Eve was made for Adam. Not the other way around. All right? That's a whole other message. <laughs> but the concept, concept's the same. You examine the purpose, you examine the priority order, and that's what Jesus is doing here. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, man was not created in order to be, his, his purpose in life was not to be a Sabbath observer. Now, he's commanded to observe the Sabbath, but that's not his purpose. And not only was it expected to be observed, but it was expected to be observed for his benefit. It was good for man who was designed to work and then who was cursed, so his work is now under awful circumstances, but even though cursed and under 
rotten circumstances, God in grace supplied a day of rest. So that he's not slaving away seven days a week, 365 days a year. He has a regular provision of rest that, yes, he's expected to obey. Yes, he's expected to honor God. He should worship. He should serve and all those things. But at the same time, it is a provision for him. God is being gracious to him. God is being gracious to him. And so if there's ever a concept that should have grace applied to it, it ought to be the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath itself is a grace provision. So man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And by keeping that perspective the way it is, then you can have an extension. Now the extension is with the Son of Man. But stop and consider, first of all, what else was made for man? Well, woman was made for man. Right? Um... The world was made for man's habitation, for his dominion, for his stewardship, for his rule. Okay, The earth was made for man, not man for the earth. Tree huggers might want to worship the earth, but guess what? The earth was made for us. It was made habitable for the human occupation. Not the other way around. And so, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, as... A consequence. Because the priority of man over the Sabbath is fixed, as a consequence to that, the Son of Man then, part of his dominion, is Lord of the Sabbath. Because he is the Son of Man. Not because he's the Son of God and he gave the Sabbath. Because he's the Son of Man. And Sabbath was made for man. Okay? I'll say that again. He's not the Lord of the Sabbath because he's the Son of God. He's not the Lord of the Sabbath because he's sovereignty and what he says goes. And divine sovereignty trumps everything else. No. He's Lord of the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man. And he's the Son of Man. Okay? That's... You, you can't divorce verse 28 from verse 27. The priority... The, when, you, when you put that in its logical priority, then that establishes the result. Of verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And uh, these are some of the things that um, we'll, we'll deal more with these titles, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. And I don't know that up to this point we've really developed them as, as well as we need to because the one that drove them up a wall more than any other was this one, was the Son of Man. Uh, they would even vehemently say, who is this Son of Man? Okay. Um, and so we'll have to deal. They like, I mean, they at least they understood the son of David part of it because that was the promised king, the promised Christ, and so forth. And they they couldn't attack his Davidic lineage other than to say, you know, you were illegitimate and your parents weren't married far enough ahead of your birth, and they could impugn something there. Uh, but the son of man was a real stumbling block for him, and and one that we'll uh, we'll do some work on coming up. All right, the withered hand. We are out of time for this session, but the withered hand controversy immediately follows in Matthew and in Luke. It, it also follows immediately in Mark, although there's a kind of a weird chapter division there. We, we switch over to chapter 3, but we're still just following the, the text. Uh, I've never been able to figure out why there's a chapter division in Mark when uh, there's not in Matthew or Luke and the... And the uh, content is the same but we have the the withered hand controversy he entered again into the synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered mark tells us it was a withered hand matthew tells us it was a withered hand dr luke goes so far as to tell you it was the right hand that was withered okay you know leave it to a doctor he wants to make sure that you know which hand is it before he operates you know <laughs> all right the doctor is going to pay attention to that kind of thing well in the uh in the uh, Pool of Bethesda controversy, the, the Pharisees jumped on him afterwards. But they didn't know about it at the time. In the uh, Pluck Grain, they jumped on him right while it was happening. Okay? In this one, the, the attack comes even before. Even before the miracle. Now, they're glaring at him. They're looking at him. They're looking at that withered hand. They're looking at this whole thing. And they're just livid. 
if he even thinks of doing a miracle, they're going to come down on him like anything. You know what? He's glaring right back. He's glaring right back. And uh, I've deliberately not gone back to Matthew or Luke. I'm still in Mark here in my text because verse 5 tells us after looking around at them with anger. The Lord's had it up to here. (laughs) Pull Bethesda, the plucked grain. Now here's this guy with a withered hand. The Lord's got some anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And we'll have to deal with that with his anger versus their anger and why it is that his is not an anger with sin and uh, and how that kind of thing happens. But that's for next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this opportunity. Pray, Father, that we might not be as negligent as the Pharisees and we might do some homework and understand what Hosea 6, 6 is all about and what it is that you truly desire in grace-oriented thinking among your children. And I thank you and I praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.